Section One of Man Overboard by Francis Marion Crawford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Man Overboard by F. Marion Crawford. Section One. Yes, I have heard Man Overboard a good many times since I was a boy, and once or twice I have seen the man go. There are more men lost in that way than passengers on ocean streamers ever learn of. I have stood looking over the rail on a dark night when there was a step beside me, and something flew past my head like a big black bat, and then there was a splash. Stokers often go like that. They go mad with the heat, and they slip up on deck and are gone before anybody can stop them, often without being seen or heard. Now and then a passenger will do it, but he generally has what he thinks a pretty good reason. I have seen a man empty his revolver into a crowd of emigrants forward and then go over like a rocket. Of course, any officer who respects himself will do what he can to pick a man up, if the weather is not so heavy that he would have to risk his ship. But I don't think I remember seeing a man come back when he was once fairly gone more than two or three times in all my life, though we have often picked up the life buoy and sometimes the fellow's cap. Stokers and passengers jump over. I never knew a sailor to do that, drunk or sober. Yes, they say it has happened on hard ships, but I never knew a case myself. Once in a long time a man is fished out when it is just too late and dies in the boat before you can get him aboard, and, well, I don't know that I ever told that story since it happened. I knew a fellow who went over and came back dead. I didn't see him after he came back. Only one of us did, but we all knew he was there. No, I am not giving you sharks. There isn't a shark in this story, and I don't know that I would tell it at all if we weren't alone, just you and I. But you and I have seen things in various parts, and maybe you will understand. Anyhow, you know that I am telling what I know about, and nothing else, and it has been on my mind to tell you ever since it happened, only there hasn't been a chance." It's a long story, and it took some time to happen, and it began a good many years ago, in October, as well as I can remember. I was mate then. I passed the local marine board for master about three years later. She was the Helen B. Jackson, of New York, with lumber for the West Indies, four-masted schooner, Captain Hackstaff. She was an old-fashioned one, even then, no steam donkey, and all to do by hand. There were still sailors in the coasting trade in those days, you remember. She wasn't a hard ship, for the old man was better than most of them, though he kept to himself and had a face like a monkey wrench. We were thirteen, all told, in the ship's company, and some of them afterwards thought that might have had something to do with it. But I had all that nonsense knocked out of me when I was a boy. 
I don't mean to say that I like to go to sea on a Friday, but I have gone to sea on a Friday, and nothing has happened. And twice before that we have been thirteen, because one of the hands didn't turn up at the last minute, and nothing ever happened either. Nothing worse than the loss of a light spar or two, or a little canvas. Whenever I have been wrecked, we had sailed as cheerily as you please. No thirteens, no Fridays, no dead men in the hold. I believe it generally happens that way. I dare say you remember those two Benton boys that were so much alike? It is no wonder, for they were twin brothers. They shipped with us as boys on the old Boston Bell when you were mate and I was before the mast. I was never quite sure which was which of those two, even then, and when they both had beards it was harder than ever to tell them apart. One was Jim, and the other was Jack, James Benton and John Benton. The only difference I could ever see was that one seemed to be rather more cheerful and inclined to talk than the other, but one couldn't even be sure of that. Perhaps they had moods. Anyhow, there was one of them that used to whistle when he was alone. He only knew one tune, and that was Nancy Lee, and the other didn't know any tune at all. But I may be mistaken about that, too. Perhaps they both knew it. Well, those two Benton boys turned up on board the Helen B. Jackson. They had been on half a dozen ships since the Boston Bell, and they had grown up and were good seamen. They had reddish beards and bright blue eyes and freckled faces, and they were quiet fellows, good workmen on rigging, pretty willing, and both good men at the wheel. They managed to be in the same watch. It was the port watch on the Helen B., and that was mine, and I had great confidence in them both. If there was any job aloft that needed two hands, they were always the first to jump into the rigging. But that doesn't often happen on a fore-and-aft schooner. If it breezed up and the jib-topsail was to be taken in, they never minded a wetting, and they would be out at the bowsprit end before there was a hand at the downhaul. The men liked them for that, and because they didn't blow about what they could do. I remember one day in a reefing job, the downhaul parted and came down on deck from the peak of the spanker. When the weather moderated and we shook the reefs out, the downhaul was forgotten until we happened to think we might soon need it again. There was some sea on, and the boom was off, and the gaff was slamming. One of those Benton boys was at the wheel, and before I knew what he was doing, the other was out on the gaff with the end of the new downhaul, trying to reeve it through its block. The one who was steering watched him and got as white as cheese. The other one was swinging about on the gaff end, and every time she rolled to leeward, he brought up with a jerk that would have sent anything but a monkey flying into space. But he didn't leave it until he had rove the new rope, and he got back all right. I think it was Jack at the wheel, the one that seemed more cheerful, the one that whistled Nancy Lee. 
He had rather have been doing the job himself than watch his brother do it, and he had a scared look. But he kept her as steady as he could in the swell, and he drew a long breath when Jim had worked his way back to the peak halyard block and had something to hold on to. I think it was Jim. They had good togs, too, and they were neat and clean men in the forecastle. I knew they had nobody belonging to them ashore, no mother, no sisters, and no wives, but somehow they both looked as if a woman overhauled them now and then. I remember that they had one ditty bag between them, and they had a woman's thimble in it. One of the men said something about it to them, and they looked at each other, and one smiled, but the other didn't. Most of their clothes were alike, but they had one red guernsey between them. For some time I used to think it was always the same one that wore it, and I thought that might be a way to tell them apart. But then I heard one asking the other for it, and saying that the other had worn it last. So that was no sign either. The cook was a West Indiaman called James Lawley. His father had been hanged for putting lights in coconut trees where they didn't belong. But he was a good cook and knew his business, and it wasn't soup and bully and dog's body every Sunday. That's what I meant to say. On Sunday the cook called both those boys Jim, and on weekdays he called them Jack. He used to say he must be right sometimes if he did that, because even the hands on a painted clock point right twice a day. What started me to trying for some way of telling the Bentons apart was this. I heard them talking about a girl. It was at night, in our watch, and the wind had headed us off a little rather suddenly, and when we had flattened in the jibs, we clued down the topsails while the two Benton boys got the spanker sheet aft. One of them was at the helm. I coiled down the mizzen topsail downhaul myself and was going aft to see how she headed up when I stopped to look at a light and leaned against the deck house. While I was standing there, I heard the two boys talking. It sounded as if they had talked of the same thing before, and as far as I could tell, the voice I heard first belonged to the one who wasn't quite so cheerful as the other, the one who was Jim, when one knew which he was. "'Does Mamie know?' Jim asked. "'Not yet,' Jack answered quietly. He was at the wheel. "'I mean to tell her next time we get home.' "'All right.' That was all I heard because I didn't care to stand there listening while they were talking about their own affairs. So I went aft to look into the binnacle, and I told the one at the wheel to keep her so as long as she had way on her, for I thought the wind would back up again before long, and there was land to leeward. When he answered, his voice somehow didn't sound like the cheerful one. Perhaps his brother had relieved the wheel while they had been speaking, but what I had heard set me wondering which of them it was that had a girl at home. There's lots of time for wondering on a schooner in fair weather. 
After that I thought I noticed that the two brothers were more silent when they were together. Perhaps they guessed that I'd overheard something that night and kept quiet when I was about. Some men would have amused themselves by trying to chaff them separately about the girl at home, and I suppose whichever one it was would have let the cat out of the bag if I had done that. But somehow I didn't like to. Yes, I was thinking of getting married myself at that time, so I had a sort of fellow feeling for whichever one it was that made me not want to chaff him. They didn't talk much, it seemed to me, but in fair weather, when there was nothing to do at night, and one was steering, the other was everlastingly hanging round as if he were waiting to relieve the wheel, though he might have been enjoying a quiet nap for all I cared in such weather. Or else, when one was taking his turn at the lookout, the other would be sitting on an anchor beside him. One kept near the other, at night more than in the daytime. I noticed that. They were fond of sitting on that anchor, and they generally tucked away their pipes under it, for the Helen B. was a dry boat in most weather, and like most fore-and-afters was better on a wind than going free. With a beam sea we sometimes shipped a little water aft. We were by the stern, anyhow, on that voyage, and that is one reason why we lost the man. We fell in with a southerly gale, southeast at first, and then the barometer began to fall while you can watch it, and a long swell began to come up from the southward. A couple of months earlier we might have been in for a cyclone, but it's October all over in those waters, as you know better than I. It was just going to blow, and then it was going to rain, that was all and we had plenty of time to make everything snug before it breezed up much. It blew harder after sunset, and by the time it was quite dark, it was a full gale. We had shortened sail for it, but as we were by the stern, we were carrying the spanker close-reefed, instead of the storm trysail. She steered better so, as long as we didn't have to heave too. I had the first watch with the Benton boys, and we had not been on deck an hour when a child might have seen that the weather meant business. The old man came up on deck and looked round, and in less than a minute he told us to give her the trysail. That meant heaving too, and I was glad of it, for though the Helen B. was a good vessel enough, she wasn't a new ship by a long way and it did her no good to drive her in that weather. I asked whether I should call all hands, but just then the cook came aft, and the old man said he thought we could manage the job without waking the sleepers, and the trysail was handy on deck already, for we hadn't been expecting anything better. We were all in oilskins, of course, and the night was as black as a coal mine, with only a ray of light from the slit in the binnacle shield, and you couldn't tell one man from another except by his voice. The old man took the wheel. We got the boom amidships, and he jammed her into the wind until she had hardly any way. It was blowing now, and it was all that I and two others could do to get in the slack of the downhaul, 
while the others lowered away at the peak and throat, and we had our hands full to get a couple of turns round the wet sail. It's all child's play on a fore-and-after compared with reefing topsails in anything like weather, but the gear of a schooner sometimes does unhandy things that you don't expect, and those everlasting long halyards get foul of everything if they get adrift. I remember thinking how unhandy that particular job was. Somebody unhooked the throat halyard block and thought he had hooked it into the head cringle of the trysail and sang out to hoist away. But he had missed it in the dark, and the heavy block went flying into the lee rigging and nearly killed him when it swung back with the weather roll. Then the old man got her up in the wind until the jib was shaking like thunder. Then he held her off, and she went off as soon as the headsails filled, and he couldn't get her back again without the spanker. Then the Helen B. did her favorite trick, and before we had time to say much, we had a sea over the quarter and were up to our waists, with the perils of the trysail only half becketed round the mast, and the deck so full of gear that you couldn't put your foot on a plank, and the spanker beginning to get adrift again, being badly stopped, and the general confusion and hell's delight that you can only have on a fore-and-after when there's nothing really serious the matter. Of course, I don't mean to say that the old man couldn't have steered his trick as well as you or I or any other seaman, but I don't believe he had ever been on board the Helen B. before, or had his hand on her wheel till then and he didn't know her ways. I don't mean to say that what happened was his fault. I don't know whose fault it was. Perhaps nobody was to blame. But I knew something happened somewhere on board when we shipped that sea, and you'll never get it out of my head. I hadn't any spare time myself, for I was beckoning the rest of the trysail to the mast. We were on the starboard tack, and the throat halyard came down to port as usual, and I suppose there were at least three men at it, hoisting away, while I was at the Beckett's. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You have known me, man and boy, several voyages, and you are older than I am, and you have always been a good friend to me. Now, do you think I am the sort of man to think I hear things when there isn't anything to hear, or to think I see things when there's nothing to see? No, you don't. Thank you. Well, now, I had passed the last becket, and I sang out to the men to sway away, and I was standing on the jaws on the spanker gaff, with my left hand on the bolt rope of the trysail, so that I could feel when it was board taut, and I wasn't thinking of anything except being glad the job was over, and that we were going to heave her too. It was as black as a coal pocket, except that you could see the streaks on the seas as they went by, and abaft the deckhouse I could see the ray of light from the binnacle on the captain's yellow oilskin as he stood at the wheel. Or rather I might have seen it if I had looked round at that minute. But I didn't look round. I heard a man whistling. It was Nancy Lee, 
and I could have sworn that the man was right over my head in the cross-trees. Only somehow I knew very well that if anybody could have been up there, and could have whistled a tune, there were no living ears sharp enough to hear it on deck then. I heard it distinctly, and at the same time heard the real whistling of the wind in the weather rigging, sharp and clear as the steam whistle on a Dago's peanut cart in New York. That was all right, that was as it should be, but the other wasn't right, and I felt queer and stiff, as if I couldn't move, and my hair was curling against the flannel lining of my sou'wester, and I thought somebody had dropped a lump of ice down my back. I said that the noise of the wind in the rigging was real, as if the other wasn't, for I felt that it wasn't, though I heard it. But it was, all the same, for the captain heard it, too. When I came to relieve the wheel, while the men were cleaning up decks, he was swearing. He was a quiet man, and I hadn't heard him swear before, and I don't think I did again, though several queer things happened after that. Perhaps he said all he had to say then. I don't see how he could have said anything more. I used to think nobody could swear like a Dane except a Neapolitan or a South American, but when I had heard the old man I changed my mind. There's nothing afloat or ashore that can beat one of your quiet American skippers if he gets off on that tack. I didn't need to ask him what was the matter, for I knew he had heard Nancy Lee, as I had, only it affected us differently. He did not give me the wheel, but told me to go forward and get the second bonnet off the staysail so as to keep her up better. As we tailed on to the sheet when it was done, the man next me knocked his sou'wester against my shoulder, and his face came so close to me that I could see it in the dark. It must have been very white for me to see it, but I only thought of that afterwards. I don't see how any light could have fallen upon it, but I knew it was one of the Benton boys. I don't know what made me speak to him. "'Hello, Jim. Is that you?' I asked. I don't know why I said Jim rather than Jack. "'I am Jack,' he answered. We made all fast, and things were much quieter. "'The old man heard you whistling Nancy Lee just now,' I said, and he didn't like it. It was as if there were a white light inside his face, and it was ghastly. I know his teeth chattered, but he didn't say anything, and the next minute he was somewhere in the dark trying to find his sou'wester at the foot of the mast. When all was quiet and she was hove to, coming to and falling off her four points as regularly as a pendulum, and the helm lashed a little to the lee, the old man turned in again, and I managed to light a pipe in the lee of the deckhouse for there was nothing more to be done till the gale chose to moderate, and the ship was as easy as a baby in its cradle. Of course the cook had gone below, as he might have done an hour earlier. So there were supposed to be four of us in the watch. There was a man at the lookout, and there was a hand by the wheel, 
though there was no steering to be done, and I was having my pipe in the lee of the deck-house, and the fourth man was somewhere about decks, probably having a smoke, too. I thought some skippers I had sailed with would have called the watch aft and given them a drink after that job, but it wasn't cold, and I guessed that our old man wouldn't be particularly generous in that way. My hands and feet were red-hot, and it would be time enough to get into dry clothes when it was my watch below. So I stayed where I was and smoked. But by and by, things being so quiet, I began to wonder why nobody moved on deck. Just that sort of restless wanting to know where every man is that one sometimes feels in a gale of wind on a dark night. So when I had finished my pipe, I began to move about. I went aft, and there was a man leaning over the wheel, with his legs apart and both hands hanging down in the light from the binnacle, and his southwester over his eyes. Then I went forward, and there was a man at the lookout, with his back against the foremast, getting what shelter he could from the staysail. I knew by his small height that he was not one of the Benton boys. Then I went round by the weather side and poked about in the dark, for I began to wonder where the other man was. But I couldn't find him, though I searched the decks until I got right aft again. It was certainly one of the Benton boys that was missing, but it wasn't like either of them to go below to change his clothes in such warm weather. The man at the wheel was the other, of course. I spoke to him. "'Jim, what's become of your brother?' "'I am Jack, sir.' "'Well, then, Jack, where's Jim? He's not on deck.' "'I don't know, sir.' When I had come up to him, he had stood up from force of instinct and had laid his hands on the spokes as if he were steering, though the wheel was lashed. But he still bent his face down, and it was half hidden by the edge of his southwester while he seemed to be staring at the compass. He spoke in a very low voice, but that was natural, for the captain had left his door open when he turned in, as it was a warm night in spite of the storm, and there was no fear of shipping any more water now. "'What put it into your head to whistle like that, Jack? You've been at sea long enough to know better.' He said something, but I couldn't hear the words. It sounded as if he were denying the charge. "'Somebody whistled,' I said. He didn't answer, and then, I don't know why, perhaps because the old man hadn't given us a drink, I cut half an inch off the plug of tobacco I had in my oilskin pocket and gave it to him. He knew my tobacco was good, and he shoved it into his mouth with a word of thanks. I was on the weather side of the wheel. "'Go forward and see if you can find Jim,' I said. He started a little, and then stepped back and passed behind me, and was going along the weather side. Maybe his silence about the whistling had irritated me, and his taking it for granted that because we were hove to and it was a dark night, he might go forward any way he pleased. Anyhow, I stopped him, 
though I spoke good-naturedly enough. "'Pass to leeward, Jack,' I said. He didn't answer, but crossed the deck between the binnacle and the deck-house to the lee side. She was only falling off and coming to, and riding the big seas as easily as possible, but the man was not steady on his feet, and reeled against the corner of the deck-house, and then against the lee-rail. I was quite sure he couldn't have had anything to drink, for neither of the two brothers were the kind to hide rum from their shipmates, if they had any, and the only spirits that were aboard were locked up in the captain's cabin. I wondered whether he had been hit by the throat halyard block and was hurt. I left the wheel and went after him, but when I got to the corner of the deck-house I saw that he was on a full run forward, so I went back. I watched the compass for a while to see how far she went off, and she must have come to again half a dozen times before I heard voices, more than three or four, forward. And then I heard the little West Indies cook's voice, high and shrill above the rest. Man overboard! End of section one. Recording by Roger Moline.